I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. I am delighted to say that my guest this week is the great Neil Brand, composer, performer, all-round top man, fifth member of the Dodge Brothers, and somebody I haven't seen for over a year. Neil, how the hell are you? Oh, very well, thank you, matey. It's very nice to be catching up with you, even in a massive public stadium, stadium like this. And I have to say, I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm starting to feel like I'm coming out the cocoon again. Uh, work's starting to slowly slide back towards me. And getting out, I think, uh, is great. I did two gigs last week. You did I gigs? absolutely adored. Yes. I, I Honestly, life-changing. It was wonderful. I did a gig at the National Film Theatre in NFT1, where you do your live show, um, and uh, played uh, Buster Keaton's The General. I'll be doing that again later on this week. And then on Sunday, I went down to Horsham and played with a band, played with the Stain Street Symphonietta, and we did Laurel and Hardy. Uh, I'd written a score for Laurel and Hardy's Your Darn Tootin', including extra bangs and whistles and thuds, and every member of the audience had a piece of paper that they could tear to go with the trouser-tearing sequence. Oh, fantastic! This was a this was a, a score that was originally commissioned by Paul Merton. So, as I pointed out to people in the church last time, I was allowed to rip anything up in church. I was about seven, so you know, make the most of it. Uh, and we had three shows, and they were pretty much all full. So it was a, a really lovely and sort of joyous occasion. You could feel people really enjoying being out, hearing live music, being in a cinema, or being in a in an audience. And yeah, just reminded me why I do this job and was all the better for it. And just briefly, before we move on to the to the, to the meat of the programme, you had COVID during this uh, lockdown. You are looking very well to me. Are you fully recovered? Bless you. Thank you. I'm, yes, I think so. There's a little bit of hangover of sort of exhaustion. I get, I get tired or quicker, but I don't know if that's, you know, COVID, long COVID, or if it's been 63. Yeah, we're just old, Neil. We're just old. <laughs> You know, it's all those Hard things. Know, that, isn't it? Yeah, all those things that you think are symptoms. That's just that we're old. You know, it's like one of, one of the things is you know, well, you feel tired all the time. I felt tired all the time for the last ten years. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's very difficult to tell the difference between whether you're feeling ill or feeling old. Well, I hope that the discussion we're about to have will make you feel ten years younger. <laughs> A 
Okay, so Neil, I got you on the podcast. I mean, partly I got you on the podcast because I wanted to talk to you because we haven't seen each other for a long time. But because I've been doing these countdown lists with Jack Howard in which we pick our top three, you know, favourite films in a genre. And I said, let's get Neil to do top three films about composers. I've also done top three films about composers. I think there is very little chance that that we'll pick similar films because I, I imagine that, I know we play in a band together, but I imagine our, you know, we have different versions of this. However, the way it works is this. I say my number three, if it's in your top three, we don't talk about it until we get to where it is in your top three. So yeah. I'm going to start at number three for me. And I know it's a, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a fairly popular choice is Amadeus. Does that feature in your top three? Yes, it does. Okay, fine. So straight away, straight away, Neil, we have, okay, straight away, we have a film that we agree. Okay, so we can't talk about it now until we get to wherever it is in your top three. So I will then throw it to you, Neil. What was your number three? My number three was Ken Russell's Marla. Is that in your list? No. (laughs) No. Okay, well, that's that's completely insane. (laughs) All right, so, so we've so, chosen two out of three the same film. Yeah, well, no, well, well, two out of six, Neil. One out of three, two yes, out of six. I mean, true. you know, that's that's very Trumpian logic. <laughs> the the uh, two out of three. Okay, all right. In that case, we move to our number two. So my number two, and I I'd be really shocked if you, if this was one of your choices. My number two is a documentary. I have chosen Sisters with Transistors. Ah. Is that in your list? No, it's not. Okay, so let me tell you about this. Now I know this is kind of slightly unfair because. You know, really, we're talking about you know films about composers. We tend to think they're biopics. Sisters with Transistors is a film that I've seen just in the very recent past. It came out uh, last year, or it came out here in the UK on streaming services this year. And it's a documentary about women electronic composers. And there was a documentary just around the same time called Underplayed, which was by Stacey Lee, which was about the kind of gender imbalance in. DJing and that kind of electronica and sisters with resistors, which is made by uh, Lisa Rovo is a documentary about how all these pioneering women came through electronic music because it was liberating and they were able to write and work in ways that they hadn't done before. So it starts off with, you know, Clara Rockmore doing the, you know, the, 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 the theremin, and then it moves on to Delia Dobshire working with the radiophonic workshop and, you know, creating those the incredible doctor who themes, which I know that you're, you know, very fascinated by because of your brilliant program um, about uh, about television music. And then Susan Gianni and uh, who did, you know, Incredible Shrinking Woman. And it talks about B.B. Barron, of course, B.B. and, uh, and uh, Louis Barron, who did that amazing electronic music for Forbidden Planet. There's this beautiful detail. I, didn't, I hadn't even realised this at the time. The music for Forbidden Planet was not allowed to be called music. It was a union issue. So they had to call it electronic tonalities. And I love the Forbidden Planet soundtrack. I've always thought it was one of the, you know, my favourite soundtrack albums because it it's just, you know, it's this incredible electronic noise made by overloading circuits, a lot of it, and then, you know, modulating the sounds as the circuits kind of collapse and the 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 music unions within the film industry wouldn't allow them to refer to it as music because they said it's not music it's noise so they had to call it electronic tonalities and the documentary which i would recommend to absolutely anybody is it's just really really fascinating it's um it's it's all about how the changing face of instruments changed the makeup of who was able to be prevalent uh, in, you know, 
in the field and it's narrated by Laurie Anderson, which obviously gives it, um, you know, a great amount of weight. And it's such good fun. Honestly, it's such good fun. And I just had a phone call from a friend of mine in Cornwall just recently who said, have you seen this thing, Sisters with Transistors? It's just brilliant and you'll love it. And I said, yeah, no, I have. It is brilliant and I do love it. And I've put it in this list because I think it's, it's about the way in which the the technology changed composition yeah. and it changed who got to do the composition and how they got to do it. And I just loved it. So that's my number two. I just wanted to be introduced as a composer and to start to point out how hard it was for women to be taken seriously as creators of music. This is the story of women who hear music in their heads, of radical sounds. This is the story of dreams enabled by technology. Using all of these, we can build up any sound we can possibly imagine. In electronics, you're dealing in energy. As a matter of interest, is there any feeling from it that the idea of a woman doing this work rather than a man changed the nature of the music? I mean, is there any sense of a female perspective on this beyond the fact that they're women? Some of the some of the contributors talk about it in terms of uh, in, in terms of gender. Most of the contributors talk about it simply in terms of that it's that everything else everything's to do with um, with accessibility. Yeah. That I mean, obviously, you know what happened with the, the, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop as Dilly Dubbish's work, you know, kind of b- became c- consumed by that. When you actually see those films of her composing in that studio. One of the things that's amazing is that she's in the studio. She's got access to all that stuff. Well, obviously, as as Electronica changed, people were able to do that at home. They were able to do it in their own, you know, in their own spaces. Mm-hmm. And so there's it. But yeah, I think that th- there is discussion of whether this stuff feels more feels more, you know, male feels more female, but there are so many different voices in the documentary that it's not, Mm. there's not one overriding conclusion. And that's the great thing about it is it's Mm. just, it feels really diverse. I mean, I know you love what, you know, I know you love the Doctor Who theme and I mean, that is an extraordinary composition, isn't it? It really is. Uh, One of the things that came up in the, uh, in the TV series, which I thought was fantastic was that uh, the, one of the very, very last projects that the radiophonic workshop did before they did uh, the doctor who theme was a uh, a bbc history of steam trains and for that they've been trying to work various electronica to get the sense of steam and railways and so forth and one of them was this thing she put together which was this well that is the doctor who thing yeah <laughs> and i love the thought the out of railways came because you have immediately both the sense of a creativity at work. And of course, I think Delia Derbyshire, when you see her working, as you say, she is a, an absolutely engaged scientific mind who happens to be a creator and an artist as well. And so the science is being put through this wonderful sense of a kind of a whole series of different inspirations, which are most of which of course are oral, but also this idea that from one job comes another into Doctor Who goes something they've worked on on something else. And 
it is a factory. It's the other thing I love about the Radiophonic Workshop. It's another BBC department in which they are being asked to provide music by the yard. And some of it will be fantastic and not and last forever. Some of it will be forgotten straight away. Some of it may never be used. Some of it may, you know, blood knocked stomach will turn up again in various Spike Milligan programs. But within that, there is this lovely mix of creativity and sheer pragmatism in which they go, oh, yeah, that, yeah, do you remember that thing we did? Yes, let's try it. And, of course, that's, that's the heart, I think, of, of early electronica, is quite yeah. often you hear something, you don't know what you're going to hear. And you you hear know, the, other, the other thing in terms of that, those connections, you say that the trains gave us the Doctor Who theme. Do you know which best-selling, almost-of-all-time pop record is ripped directly off the Doctor Who theme? No. Um, uh, do they know it's Christmas? Uh, Midjua wrote it in a taxi to the Doctor <laughs> Who theme. That it's absolutely it's Doctor Who, and he just said he said that was the, that was the tune he had. They were in the taxi. The studio was he needed to write the thing, so he just thought I'll do I'll do the Doctor Who theme. <laughs> I love it. That which is, went on to be you know one of the biggest selling records of all time. Okay, so that's my number two. As I said, it's kind of but I'm I, you know I thought you'd love it as well. But honestly, yeah. you should see this, Doc Neil. You would. It's I mean. It's not a patch on your television programs, obviously, but no, it, is a, it, it, is, it is a real insight <laughs> to the creative process. Okay, what is your number two? My number two is Walk the Line. Wow, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. I love that film. <laughs> I, um, I'm very fascinated by artists that I know something about but don't know much about. And although I could tell you what Johnny Cash sounded like, and I could probably tell you before I saw that film, a couple of the big hit numbers. I couldn't tell you much more than that until I saw the film. And what I loved about it was not only that you got the deep dive into where this all came from, both in terms of his personality and his songwriting, that, of course, it's an area of Americana that you and I love very much and that you and the Dodge Brothers are very deep in as well. You also got a sense of who this personality was, who this guy was. You, you know, the man in black, the dark sound of the actual performances, the subject of the songs, all of those I felt in that film were being beautifully delineated and put into place. It was like there was a massive jigsaw of Johnny Cash. And bit by bit, you started to say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Not only from the point of view of the troubled artist, because we've seen and heard that a zillion times, but that sense of coming out of grinding poverty with a talent, with an extraordinary talent, with an ability, with an ability to transcend where you've come from. And here we have a dad who has not got those abilities. And so when, you know, when his brother dies, says the wrong brother died, you know, they had more expectations of a, one of the two sons becoming a preacher than they had of one, the other one becoming a singer. And so Johnny Cash grows up with that. And, of course, it's based on the two Johnny Cash autobiographies and a whole series of interviews that he did. And I just came out of the other end not only understanding that much better, I understood the whole basis of rock and roll a lot better. I understood that Memphis sound a lot better. And I also liked it. For a film to put on screen someone who has the kind of issues and challenges that that character had, beautifully 
played by Joaquin Phoenix. To like him and feel his pain and want him to win through, even when he's got his wife on the floor in front of his crying children and has just pulled a sink off the wall and is forever plaguing June Carter. That's a hell of a thing. And it wasn't just because of the music. It wasn't because I wanted yeah. to like Johnny Cash. I knew nothing about Johnny Cash. But it all felt absolutely authentic. And I think that's the big thing. It's the tough thing always if you're doing a film about a composer is avoiding what used to be known as the morning Dickens, morning Thackeray thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But okay, but that that also walks into the territory of what I've always referred to. Which is, this is a phrase that I stole from John uh, John Ronson, which is the chubby hum moment. And the chubby hum moment is, and it often usually happens in composer films, is when the composer or the famous person does the thing that they're famous for. There's a it, this comes from uh, the Karen Carpenter story, um, which is a terrible television movie, which John Ronson was talking to me about. He said there's a moment in it in which when they're starting out, uh, Richard Carpenter is reading the review of a gig that they've played. And Karen Carpenter says, does it say anything about me? And Richard Carpenter says, it says the chubby drummer kept time. And she goes, chubby? Hmm. And then it's, you know, that's like the whole of the rest of the film is based on that. And then there's a moment in The Doors when they're writing Light My Fire. Do you remember yeah. this? And, and uh, Ray Manzarek goes, I need a keyboard bit. Duh, 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 duh. Hang on. Can you guys just go down the bar for a little bit? And as they walk out, literally as they walk out, he goes. Duh, 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 duh. So that's the chubby, the chubby moment in yeah. in Walk the Line. They get away with because it comes when June says, "You don't, you can't walk no line." Mm. And it's in the middle of an argument, and it's not him saying it. Yeah. She gets away with it because that's a really hard line to deliver without <laughs> everybody going, okay. I mean, I, there must have been a moment when she went, do I actually have to say that? What was I thinking? I must have been crazy. Y'all going to blow this tour. You can't walk no line. Jim, we ain't blowing the tour. I am not going to be that little Dutch boy with my finger in the dam no more. Now you're lying to yourself. You think it's about a tour, honey? This isn't about a tour. This isn't about a song. The other thing I love is the, descri the description of why those songs sound like they do. You know, slow as a freight train because we can't play fast. Yeah. Very yeah. few cuts because we don't know any. And one of the beautiful details about that, and I have not seen this in any other film, the double bassist with the bits of gaffer tape marking the notes on yeah. the neck of the bass. Yeah. I've never seen that in another film. And every double bassist I know who you know plays in a, the kind of bass that we play, yeah, of course you do. Yeah. Of course you do. That's because you weren't taught where the notes were. You stick yeah. a bit of gaffer tape on it. And that's, and I thought it got that stuff right. Plus the fact that they were both singing and they could both yeah. sing really, you know, amazingly well. What you hear is an authentically uh, small sound. And by small, I mean, you really do just hear two guitars and a bass and yeah. then two guitars and a bass and a set of drums. And that goes for pretty much the whole of the score. There's no point at which we suddenly go into, oh, isn't Johnny sad strings, <laughs> which of course would have killed it stone it's, dead. It's, here, here, yeah? is a, here is a soaring piece called Johnny is sad. Yeah, yeah, or Johnny is angry. Yeah. <laughs> 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So we now move to our number one spots, which we already know. And I'm I'm just so amazed that we both chose. So so I'm going to go first. So my number three... My, my number one is your number three and your number one is my number three. So my number one is Ken Russell's Marla. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you exactly why it's Ken Russell's Marla. Um, when I was a kid, I used to get the train from Finchley to High Barnet to get to school. And the way I learned about movies was the movie posters on the trains that went from, you know, Finchley Central, East Finchley, you know, Woodside Park, Totteridge, I Barnet. So those five stops were the stops that I learned what was in the cinema. The poster for Marla was the scariest poster I had ever seen. And if you, if no one's, if you can't remember it, it's an image of a bust of Marla, but the, the mouth is broken away and there is a mouth inside screaming. So it's like an Edgar Allan Poe. It's like a buried alive story. So the film it's a, it's a biopic about him. I didn't know what Marla was. I didn't know who or what. I mean, I actually thought the word was Mathla because you'd see it on a train. I'd never seen Marla's name written down, but I saw this image and it, it struck me. I thought it was a horror film. Years later, when I'd seen things like Tommy and, uh, you know, and I kind of by that point knew who Ken Russell was. And I went to see Marla as it actually turned out to be. And I had, you know, I know it's the, the temptation is to go back to to Russell's BBC films because those BBC documentaries and you know the films about composers are brilliant. But when you come to the feature films, I mean, I love Listomania because I think the whole rock star thing works really well, and also because I remember Roger Daltrey saying that he arrived on set and there was a massive hydraulic penis, and he went, "Yep, it's a Ken Russell film." <laughs> but because Marla managed to sell to me a kid who, who had no interest in, in going to see a film about a classical composer. It had, it got me to desperately want to see that film and to finally go and track it down when it was on a re-release somewhere that was hard to get to because it was Ken Russell's Marla. And, you know, and I remember there are key sequences in it, the coffin stuff and all the rest of it is, 
And obviously the idea of, there are sort of central ideas and preoccupations in it that particularly strike a chord with me, but it was more to do with the fact that I can't imagine another filmmaker making a film that would have had that impact on an audience so completely ill-suited for it. Tell me why you love it. Again, as with Walk the Line, I didn't know much about Marla until I saw the film. I didn't know much about the music. I didn't know anything about the man. There was something I take absolutely on board about how it was promoted, but there was also something kind of very sort of naughty and adult about mm -hmm. it. And I think that was the other thing that went, that flew in the face of Radio 3. You know, the, this was not quiet, uh, contemplative classical music. The explosion of the, of the, the hut on the lake at the beginning. You know, this, this good old Ken, you know, this is him slamming Alexander Walker over the head with his own newspaper review. <laughs> this, is, this is what this film's going to be about. Do not think for one single moment it's not. Boom! And that wonderful chord, and I couldn't tell you which symphony it's from, but it is from some huge, you know, that is a Mahler chord. And after I'd seen the film and felt that I'm, I had at least my bucket partway full now about Mahler, I then went and got, I listened to, uh, first of all, the first symphony, sat and listened to that, completely blown away by it. And so much of the first symphony turns up in the film. So then you hear a piece on the symphony, oh, my God, that's when he's did it. All that, all that stuff. Then I got the fourth, and the fourth is bananas. And I even <laughs> went to the library and found the score of the fourth because there were so many things in it that when I heard it, I thought, I don't understand that. I don't know that chord. I don't see what he's doing. I had to get the score and look at it and realize that what he was basically doing was clusters of notes in a way that jazz people would understand, but for his time were phenomenally advanced. I mean, this was, this was symphonic writing that understood the miasma of notes you could get and how much extra you could get out of not open chords, not open harmonies. So he, Ken, taught me that as much as anything else. And so much of what's in the film, of course, it links completely between the way Ken reads Mahler and reads his motivation, his psychology the whole time, mm -hmm. and the music that is coming out as a result. And I just thought it was the most superb joining together of the two. And it started me off, not just on a love of Mahler, started me off on a beginnings of an understanding of tougher classical music, classical music that wasn't Beethoven, Mozart, Handel, etc. You take care of the children and I'll take care of the music. You're inhuman. You'd rather sacrifice the lot of us than lose one note of your wretched music. I conduct to live. I live to compose. The only thing between me and that job is Cousin of Wagner. So what are you going to do? Marry her? Nothing so drastic. I'll just become a Catholic. <laughs> I had the, you know, the pleasure of knowing Ken quite well because he was a, a neighbour 
And I, I interviewed him, as you know, many people did, and talked to him about uh, classical music. And he used to tell this story that, you know, he really didn't know much classical music until one day he heard the Riots of Spring and he got on his bike and he went down the, the record shop and he said, have you got this? And they went, yes. And they gave him it and he took it home. And he said, and he said, I put it on and, uh, and I immediately took all my clothes off and danced around the living room. And I, <laughs> and, and I said, I said, Ken, you tell this story all the time. Is it true? Did you actually to do that did you actually take your clothes off and dance around the living room and he went well of course I did he said <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't you and I said no I wouldn't and that's the point that's why you are Ken Russell and I'm not and he always used to say that when he when he listened to music he saw pictures because he he began of course you know I know you know this already but he began raising money for the Spitfire uh, Club by playing uh, silent films that he had you know short reels of silent films and accompanying them with records that he would put on and he just loved the way the records would accompany so he comes out of that whole tradition of putting music on for silent films to, you know, like I said, to raise money for the Spitfire. But, and, but it's so lovely that that's where, he, that's where his background is. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he, he, I just, the, he, that exuberant love of music, also that kind of, yes, Mahler is, is based in, you know, fact and all the rest of it, but Ken's relationship with fact, I mean, I love The Devils, which is, you know, he will say it's a true story, but Ken's relationship with fact is at very best passing. Yeah. And I love the fact that he, he never felt the need to be constrained to realism, you know, to, to kitchen sink realism. He comes from the, the Powell and Pressburger tradition mm. of it's a film. Mm. It's a film. It's, you know, it's, and yeah, I absolutely love that movie. I'm so thrilled that it was in your top three. It's my <laughs> number one. So Neil, what's your number one? My number one is Amadeus. Yeah. Milos Forman, 1984. Um, Again, I didn't know much about Mozart. I knew that Mozart had written pieces of music that I could hum, but I knew almost nothing about him. And the film came as a complete surprise because I knew nothing about the play either. And I think, you know, it's worth mentioning that one reason why Amadeus works as a fantastic story, because it's the suggestion, which has always been there, but Peter Schaffer took one stage further, that Mozart's death was brought about or was in some way or other hurried on by another composer called Salieri, Antonio Salieri. And Salieri was not up to much, certainly nowhere near the composer that Mozart was. So the play is another one of Schaffer's looks at, you know, like the Royal Hunt of the Sun. Uh, What does it mean to be God? What does it mean to be a human being touched by God? And in this case, what does it mean to be a very ordinary human being who has the most horrendous uh, attitudes to the world? Uh, You know, how can you say you are Amadeus, the beloved of God, if you do fart gags and get drunk (laughs) and are horrible to people and generally behave like a rock star? So the, the film took that several stages further. And we have F. Murray Abraham as Salieri watching Mozart getting up to all these things and yet producing music that Salieri knows absolutely he could no more score himself, compose himself than Fly to the Moon. Um, It's a film which not only, again, fills in a vast amount of knowledge for me. I then went out and got the double album of the film. Um, It introduced me to so many Mozart pieces that I hadn't come across before. 
it introduced me to the operas. I'd not really taken any notice of the operas. And I think Milos Forman made such a fantastic job of making the play a cinematic experience. It felt like cinema throughout. And the music is almost secondary to this wonderful kind of shootout between Salieri and Mozart, in which they're both trying to live better lives than the other one, but only one of them knows he will always write better music. So you do have this great slippage between Salieri, who, yeah, I think there's actually a line in it that Salieri says, you know, why did you give him these gifts and why did you make me the only person who can see them? You know, it's it's like kind of, it's so it's not only what's it like to be God or touched by God, what's it like to know you're not, which I think chimes in beautifully with Walk the Line because yeah. that's what Johnny Cash is dealing with the whole time. Yeah, it, yeah. His, his heavenly elder brother dies in a very young age and Johnny is left with all his hang-ups and all his evil and all his badness as far as he's concerned. This is very much Salieri, and there's a lovely moment at the end where Salieri is blessing the various inmates of the madhouse that he's in, saying, I'm the patron saint of... I can't remember what the word is. It's something like the patron saint of the... Uh, it's like failures, isn't it? Of yes. you know, patrons that be the people who tried but didn't, you know, yeah. didn't never quite made it grafters. It's something on that on that. Yes, I mean it is it is fantastic. Him in the you know being wheeled along with his I mean the thing I the thing I love about the well, many things I love about it. One of them is I think it's really funny. I think that yes. um that all the, the the jokes, I think the too many notes thing is just it, is a line that I will use all the time because it's it's just really, really funny. You know, it's marvellous, but too many notes. Too, too, too many notes, Your Majesty? It's too, too many notes. Just just take some out. <laughs> Certainly, Your Majesty. Which ones? I mean, all yeah. of that I love. I love the fact that he has this ridiculous laugh mm. um, that is, is so grating on the ears, and yet, the you know, the, the fact that... The vessel is the wrong vessel. The thing about you know, I'm vulgar man, but my but my music is not vulgar. Um, I love that. I love the fact that it is seen through the eyes of, as you say, somebody who who appreciates it but can't do it, mm. and therefore is kind of driven almost insane because it is like God's great joke, isn't it? You've got these. Which one of these do you want? Do you want the the one who literally sits there and praises you every time he manages to string three notes together, or the grubby mm. one who the last time we saw him was under the table, half naked, <laughs> with the nipples of Venus and all that? You know the rest of it, all that stuff going on. Yeah. And I love the scene in which um, Salieri plays the piece that he's written for Amadeus. Oh, yeah. And then he and then he says, you know, do you want the music? He says, no, it's all here in my head. And Salieri doesn't believe him. So he says, why don't you sit down and play it? And he starts playing it. And he goes, it goes like that. It goes, and then he goes, that doesn't quite work, does it? And then he starts, re he starts editing it in front of him. And it's excruciating, but it's also... <laughs> It's also really, and the scene when Salieri is there and, and it, Salieri in disguise gets him to mimic Salieri. Yeah. Remember they're also, they do like musical parody. And the yeah. thing that's clever about that is I think anyone could watch that and understand it because musical, you know, classical musical parody sounds like something, well, that's a niche audience, right? Oh, mm. I'm writing something in the style of this composer. But Amadeus is a very populist film. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a very, very populist, big romping, entertaining movie. And it's Simon Mayo's favourite film of all time. And I 
it, it sticks slightly in the gullet with me because I've seen it several times in different versions, including the director's cut. And Mayo has never once watched The Exorcist, and I don't think he's ever going to either. <laughs> because the thing is, you can sit down and watch Amadeus at any time. You can't just do that with The Exorcist. It has to be a particular moment. <laughs> it does have a chubby hmm moment of yours, which is actually Mozart literally composing a piece of music on his deathbed, which Salieri <laughs> has to take down. Do you have it? Do you have it? Yes. Do you have it? <laughs> but that fantastic thing of... You know, if, if we're going to do a film about a composer, what the hell? Let's just hear him coming up with it and humming it to somebody else. And, I, and that then, when you hear the way that he's putting together the piece which is going to end up being the Requiem, then going on in from that into seeing the body of Mozart being put into a pauper's grave, because, of course, we have no idea where yeah. Mozart's buried. Yeah. Because he died in penury. That sense of really, for me, very profound sadness at the waste and the loss of that gift, that worked beautifully because we'd heard him composing. We heard what it was, and what he was composing was transcendental. And even as he was taking it down, Salieri didn't understand what it was doing, but then he saw. Yeah. And then he's gone, and the music over it is the Lacrimosa. And I have to say, the Lacrimosa after that became one of my all-time favourite pieces of music. It still is. It, I, can, I can hear it in my head now, and it's, I've got goosebumps up the back of my head, and it is so, so deeply sad. I, I, it's, it's a hell of a film. Are we going to appall you with something confidential and disgusting? Let's hope so, because that is what you really like. Unconfessed crimes of buried wickedness. If that is what brings you to us, the prospect of hearing horrors, you shall not go unrewarded. I don't believe it. The whole city is talking. You hear it all over. What a story. What a scandal. What a comedy. What a tragedy. Incredible. I don't believe it. Who can believe it? What horrors have you heard? Tell us. Tell us. Tell us at once. Tell us about Wolfgang. Amadeus. Mozart. Mozart? <laughs> How good is he, this Mozart? He's remarkable. He's an unprincipled, spoiled, conceited brat. I'm a vulgar man. But I assure you, my music is not. He is divinely inspired. He is arrogant, vulgar, obscene. He creates music for the gods. He is passionate. He burns with fire. He is an angel. He is a devil. He claimed he'd been poisoned. Some said he accused a man. Some said the man was Salieri. Salieri? Salieri. I don't believe it. All the same. Could it be possible? Did Salieri do it after all? Did he murder Amadeus? <laughs> He, um, we just sort of bring this to a close by me saying that the, the greatest chubby hum moment in any of those com composition films is in Immortal Beloved, um, you know, Immortal Beloved, in which, you know, Gary Oldman uh, going deaf and, um, and they're in a pub and they say, you know, what's, what's he doing? He said, I don't know. He's just sitting in his room going da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> 
Which yeah. it always reminds me of that advert about, you know, what about your unfinished symphony? What about my unfinished Cronenberg? You know, it's like it's that, it's, 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 that, it's that level of crass contrivance. Okay, so Neil, so this is, it's a real pleasure. Let's just recap our top three because it's so lovely how much, uh, how much synchronicity you had. So at number three, I had uh, Amadeus. At number three, you had Ken Russell's Marla. At number two, I had Sisters with Transistors. You had Walk the Line. And at number one, I had Ken Russell's Marla, and you had Amadeus. We've been in a band together too long. <laughs> we are actually starting to think like each other. Neil, thank you ever so much. It's been a real pleasure. I cannot wait to play again. Um, yeah. I really, really want us to be out gigging again. Um, what have you got coming up since you're here on the podcast? What would you like to tell our listeners that's <laughs> happening with you? Well, uh, at the moment, not very much live. Bits and bobs, which I hope are going to survive through uh, July and August. I shall be playing in, uh, with a bit of luck, Munich in August. I shall, even with even more luck, be playing in, uh, in Devon in, uh, in July. And I'm writing a piece of music which has been commissioned. Uh, it's a private commission, which is rather fantastic, which is a piece for organ and soprano, which is actually a heavily disguised ghost story. And I am having so much fun with it. Fantastic. Um, we're still we're still deciding quite how much we're going to give away in the promotion of the show. But it's 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 lovely and it's also an instrument and a voice I've never written for before, so that's great. And next year, if everything goes well, I should be writing some silent film music for the Brighouse and Rastrick Brass Band. Oh my wow, Neil. <laughs> So wow. I could not be happier in how my future composition world looks like it's going to be gay. Well, you know, hey, if, if you ever find yourself writing a piece and you need a theremin, you know hey, who to turn to. Man. Um, thanks ever so much for listening to this uh, Come On Film podcast. If you've enjoyed it, subscribe. Remember, tell your friends. Uh, check out all of Neil's stuff. There's a whole bunch of Neil's music online, which is really great. You can follow Neil on Twitter. Neil, your Twitter handle is... Neil at Neil K Brand at Neil K Brand and there's loads loads of great stuff there thanks for listening stay safe keep watching the sky speak to you next week when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.